take your Bibles and turn. Hope you have your Bibles with you. Take you take them and turn to John chapter one. John chapter one. In every great story there comes a turning point. And usually the turning point occurs at that moment in the story when Hope seems to be fading away when the light seems to be dimmed to the point of darkness. The the strategies or the devices that storytellers use are familiar to us all. There are the, those moments of real anguish when the damsel is in distress or the princess is asleep or the mystery is unsolvable or death is unavoidable. And when you think about any great story, there is that moment of tension when you're not sure how it's going to be resolved. It's true in fairy tales. It's true in sports movies. It's true in dramas. It's true in suspense movies. It's true in war movies. But in those great stories that touch our hearts and pull at our emotional strings and make us feel like they're a part of a larger scale, the hero always shows up. Maybe it's not a hero, but it's a clue that solves the case. Maybe it's the past that wins the game. Maybe it's Rambo showing up. But in those classic fantasy stories... Prince Charming always arrives on time. Today, in the midst of our story, that's where we are. We talked two weeks ago about that God created in the beginning and once upon a time in a land far, far away, we found ourselves in the midst of a story where God created us to be part of a dance or a relationship with Him. And in part, and our response is that we rejected that as humans and we moved our own way. And that the entirety of the Old Testament, while it can't be summed up in this, is characterized by the fact that we, over and over again, attempt, and the nation of Israel did this as well, to make promises to God to make sure that we're going to be better, and we end up breaking our promises on every occasion. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament, and in the 400 years that span between the end, of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, you find yourself at this place where the tension can be cut with a knife, where it seems like there's no solution it's on the horizon, when over and over again the Jewish people are crying out for a deliverer, crying out for help, crying out for something to happen, and yet over and over again their lives continue to be marked by this rebellion and this recommitment and rebellion and recommitment. And just as in great stories that we've seen, in the story, the hero shows up right on time. And the hero of our story is Jesus. He's the hero of the story of the book that you hold in your hands that's called the Bible. But more importantly than that, he's the hero of the story of all time. And it's way he shows up is pretty remarkable and we're going to talk about that today but what happens is he always shows up right when he's supposed to scriptural term for that is in the fullness of time and that just means when the timing was right 
Not when we thought it was right, not when the Israelites thought it was right, not when anybody else thought it was right, but in the timing of God when he thought it was right. The hero showed up. And I want you to think about today as we move into the last two sermons in this series, today and next week, is really how the story relates to your story. Because the truth is, if we follow our own natural stories, what we will find is that we too are people created by God for a purpose and a relationship with Him. And just like Adam and Eve, when God creates us for that relationship, you and I choose once and for all and on a regular basis to direct our attention away from God and to fill it with sin in our lives. Again, sin is not necessarily just doing things bad. It's making anything good into the ultimate. It's doing anything to put yourself in God's place. It's doing something that is contrary to God's will. And we all find ourselves in a place where sin has invaded our lives. And when we do that, what happens is the consequences of sin, just like for Adam and Eve, begin to build upon us. Insecurity creeps into our lives. Disillusionment happens. You know, one of the things that I see about my generation, about the generations that are coming behind me, is that it is some of the most cynical people that I've ever met. And I say that as one of them. And what I'm beginning to understand is, without real hope and understanding of God's story, what happens is disillusionment sets in. And when disillusionment sets in, suddenly you become cynical about everything that you see. And the way that we try to fill our lives is to get past all of that, and we end up giving ourselves to things that are not in any way close to the God who desires that relationship with us. And when we get there, there's one of two ways that we can solve that problem. One is through religion. And when I say religion, I'm not talking about any religion in particular. I'm talking about the structure of religion, which is I'll do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad. I'll go through enough ritual to outweigh what I've done wrong that I myself will do all that I can to make sure that I'm following God. Now, the truth is that religion in itself is sinful. Because what you're doing is trying to pay a price you cannot pray with your own acts and works. In fact, some of the most, some of the most sinful people in this world are probably some of the most religious people. I've been a part of Baptist churches all my life. I was born and went to a Baptist church before the doctors probably wanted me to go to the Baptist church. And I've, been, I've grown up in uh, Baptist churches of all shapes and sizes. I grew up in a small country Baptist church when I was five, and then I moved to First Baptist Church in Dyersbury. And when I went to college, I went to an even bigger Baptist church. We went to seminary, I went to an even bigger Baptist church. And then I got hired on at a smaller Baptist church, and then I went to a smaller Baptist church, and then I've been here. I've been in Baptist churches. And one of the things that I've seen in Baptist churches is there are some of the most religious people I've ever seen in Baptist churches. People that have a set of rules that they're going to keep, and they keep them. Amen? But that doesn't mean they're following God. 
And so the choices we have are to be religious. Now, some people say, I don't even care. They just give up. And so they go and they live their lives however they want to. And they, we think about the prodigal son and we think about those kind of people that just run away from God. But the truth is you can run away from God from doing bad or you can run away from God by doing good. Either way, you're running away from God. And the second choice we have is to accept the story as it's laid out and receive the grace that God intends for us. Now, last week we covered all of the Old Testament in a sermon, all right? And that's difficult, all right? Today we're just going to cover the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in a sermon. In the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all right? So just four books today, it ought to be easier, but it's not. And I want to give you three things in this story idea to grasp your head around that help us to understand That in the midst of the most perilous and difficult times, God shows up. John chapter 1. Now we're reminded here that the story begins before our story, right? Our story begins in Genesis chapter 1. Well, not my story, but the story of human begin in Genesis chapter 1. But there is a story before the story. Got all that? John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who's the Word? Who's the Word? Jesus, right? And Jesus was God. Some of you said, when I said, who was the Word? Some of you said God. And said, uh-oh, maybe I said the wrong thing. It's Jesus. It doesn't matter. It's the same, okay? Through Him, all things were made. So Jesus was involved in creation. Without Him, nothing was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 14, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. The Word became flesh. One of those big uh, biblical words that we use a lot is the word incarnation. Right? Basically, incarnation means in the flesh. In uh, the rest of the New Testament, when it talks about uh, works of the Spirit or works of the flesh, the word that is used there is the word we get carnal or, in this case, incarnation from. And so it literally means Jesus took on our flesh, He took on our blood, He became one of us, He walked among our world, He was incarnated in our flesh. I love the way when it says He made His dwelling among us. I just love that picture. The, the picture is literally that He tabernacled. And that goes back to the Old Testament. Remember we talked last week about God's presence being in the tabernacle. What it means is He literally came and lived among us. And the message paraphrase says it this way, He moved into our neighborhood. And I know for us He lived on the other side of the world, but when you consider the size of the universe, the other side of the world is our neighborhood. And you realize that's really more of a theological statement than a location statement. It means that He became one of us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me give you three things about Jesus in the story here that we're going to talk about today. And the first is this. His arrival is unexpected. His arrival is unexpected. Basically what happens is, God is in this courtship with humanity, and humanity continues to turn its back on God over and over and over again. And the author decides to join in the story. He decides to come part of what 
we are. The writer became part of the text. The word became a word, if you will. He takes on all of our physical limitations, although sometimes his limitations he sets aside and he does things that none of us can do. But the Scripture makes it clear and our church tradition and history makes it clear that God became us, one of us. He walked among us. He lived among us. He drank. He ate. He sweated. He worked hard. He got tired. Things that God had never done before. And He put Himself, limiting Himself to us. In Philippians 2 it says that He who was equal with God did not consider something to be held on to, but emptied Himself and became one of us. Now here's the thing. His arrival was unexpected in how it happened. That shouldn't have been. If you look at the book of Isaiah, it tells us how he will be born. He will be born of a virgin. If you look at the book of Micah, it tells us where he will be born. He will be born in Bethlehem. If you look at Genesis and Jeremiah, it tells us who his ancestry will be. But it still wasn't the way that the Jewish people expected. In fact, if you and I were writing a story, we probably wouldn't put him in the role that he put himself in. In a minute, we're going to talk about his humility just briefly, but the idea that The God who spoke and the world came into existence, created Himself inside that world, is just amazing. Scripture says that while He was here, He was 100% man. But the Bible also teaches that while He was here, He was 100% God. His arrival was unexpected. Nobody was really looking for it. Oh, they were looking for the Messiah. If you look... uh, If you look at the history of the Jewish people, there were messiahs that jumped up all the time. This is the messiah, and he'd gather a group of people out to him, and something would happen, and they'd realize he's not the messiah, and they would leave. It wasn't for a lack of people claiming to be the messiah. It's just the fact that Jesus fits all the criteria, even though the Jewish people didn't know what criteria to look for. I am always flabbergasted when we get to Christmas and how we repeat the same mistakes of the Jewish people that first Christmas on a regular basis. It's kind of neat to talk about Christmas when we're not in Christmas, right? I don't think many stores have Christmas stuff out yet. But it's coming. I was in Cracker Barrel the other day, and there are Christmas things in Cracker Barrel. I just think they leave them up. Now, if I left it up at my house all the time, it'd be a problem. But at Cracker Barrel, it's okay. It's kind of neat to talk about it because once you get into Christmas, you get into Christmas, right? And the amazing thing is around here that Christmas has all these trappings about what Christmas is. And it's hard sometimes in the midst of that to get down to the essence of the message, which is that God became man. We get caught up in the wrapping and the trees and the presents and the cider and the parties and the food and the vacations, and the weather, and different songs on the radio, and movies on the television. And in the midst of that, what we do is we start our expectation of what Christmas is going to be. And in the midst of our expectation for what Christmas is going to be, we miss the essence of what Christmas is. Now what happened with the Jewish people is, they got caught up in the expectations of what their Messiah was going to be. And what they missed was what the Messiah 
is. So God shows up. And another thing about Christmas that sometimes gets lost is that God entering this world, while it was in the precious form of a baby boy in a manger in a nondescript town on the outer edges of the world, make no mistake, it was an invasion. We don't like to think about Christmas and that baby being in military action. But in the spiritual warfare dimension of the history of the story, it was an invasion. We know it was an invasion, and we know that the enemy knew it was an invasion because as soon as he could, he turned the heart of a king to try to kill God. Right? John says that the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. 14, John 14, 14 continues to say, We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the thing. Not only was his arrival unexpected, his life was unparalleled. What it tells us in here basically is that Jesus lived a life nobody else has ever lived. That Jesus, when he came to this earth, lived a life that nobody else has ever lived. I mean, it's just an amazing thing to think about this man who came to earth and lived a life that we can't really fathom. Part of the reality of being a human being is that when I wake up each morning, there are certain inadequacies that follow me the rest of my day. Not just physical, I have physical, but emotional, character. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we could probably point out pretty quickly our own character flaws. And I think sometimes children are gifts from the Lord for those of us that are stubborn to see our character flaws played out in somebody else. Amen? Anybody else ever gotten mad at your child and then realized they're just like you? Uh, Some of you said, I get mad at my child and I realize they're just like my spouse. And that's not what I'm saying. All right? But we all have these character issues. And so when I talk about Jesus living a perfect life, I know that I say that. When I talk about his life being unparalleled in perfection and his sinlessness, and you know, it tells us in the New Testament that he who knew no sin became sin. I understand mentally that Jesus was perfect in every aspect. But then when I live my life on a daily basis, it is hard for me to fathom how that took place. Because I mess up a lot. Glad there were no amens there, all right? But I do. I mess up a lot. And I'm going to bet, I'm not a betting man, but I'd win this one, that you do too. We mess up a lot. And to think that Jesus, who was God incarnate, and while, yes, he was 100% God, was 100% man, lived a life where he never did anything sinful is just amazing. Growing up, he never committed a sinful act towards brothers and sisters. That he never, in a sinful way, disobeyed his parents. That he never said a word that he wished he could take back. That he never had a thought that had he lingered that he let linger to a point where it became sinful in his mind. 
that he never spoke in anger just to get back at somebody. Perfect. You know, the truth is, when you look at the Scripture, you see a lot of characteristics of the life that Jesus lived. He was humble. If I were given charge of the universe and I could make my appearance on the scene, on this place that I've created, I'm going to make a pretty big appearance. Right? I just am. We as humans love big parades and parties and announcements. I watched part of the funeral yesterday for Ted Kennedy. And I was just struck by the the pomp and circumstance of that funeral, that send-off. Every time I go to a Titans football game, I am amazed at how much stuff goes on before they ever kick the ball off. I went last year for the Monday night game. Took my father-in-law with me, and there were eagles flying in and people parachuting in and the ball delivered on 50-yard line and Hall of Famers recognized and four or five songs and fireworks and we hadn't kicked the ball off yet. There my father-in-law looking over to me and saying, the game's anywhere near the pregame. It's going to be good. We like the announcement. We like the bigness of it. And yet we see in Scripture that God, <laughs> He can put on a show that we can't rival. Amen? God decides to step into our world. It's in a very humble way. Now listen, His humility is different than our humility. We're not talking about here because Jesus does say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus made some strong statements about Himself. A couple of things. First of all, they're true. And you're a God of the universe. You can say things about yourself like that because they're true. Secondly, what we see in the humility of Jesus is that He emptied Himself lowered himself from us. The, the, the picture that I've told you about in the Old Testament that I love is that when it talks about God is gracious and his loving kindness, the, the word picture there of the graciousness is literally that he stoops down looking at us eye to eye. He was humble. He was brilliant. One of the things that we, we don't talk about that much is how smart and brilliant Jesus was. But when he taught, it says he taught with power and authority, but he says he taught in a way that the Pharisees and the scribes could not. No one had ever heard somebody that taught like him. There are still people that have no connection whatsoever to the Christian faith or believing in Jesus Christ as Savior who will study his writings because they are considered some of the greatest sayings and discussions that have ever existed. You know what I think is interesting about this? Is what did Jesus use more than anything else to teach? Parables, which are stories. B. Rolanda, sometimes when uh, pastors start talking about they're going to preach on the story of the Bible, there are people that get a little nervous. You mean you're not going to go point by point by point? The truth is, Jesus didn't go point by point by point. Most of you know that's how I teach, that's how I preach, but Jesus told stories. In fact, there's one part in Scripture in the Gospels where it says that He did not speak to them unless He spoke in parables, stories. He was a brilliant man. He was a sinless man. He was a humble man. And He was a holy, whole man. W-H-O-L-E. 
The Hebrew word for peace means a wholeness, not an absence of conflict. And Jesus was that. I saw this this week and I thought it was good. It said, Jesus is a holy conundrum, a living enigma, a mystery. And when you talk about his wholeness, he was helpless and yet almighty, temporal and yet eternal, human and yet divine. He grew up to become a carpenter who was mildly meek, quietly loud, furiously patient, humbly proud. He was the bringer of both peace and of sword, of clarity and of confusion, of judgment and of pardon. He was too normal looking to arouse suspicious. He didn't stick out in a crowd. In fact, Judas had to point him out to the soldiers so they could identify him. He was forgettable, and yet he was the most memorable and influential man in all of history. He spoke in the riddles of a mystic, yet with the authority of God. He was both humble and audacious, both soft-spoken and fiery, full of both sorrow and joy. No one has ever been meeker. No one has ever been bolder. Jesus, the real Jesus, is earth-shaking. He will both calm your soul and send a tidal wave of truth crashing through your spirit. As soon as you try to figure Him out or wrap your mind around Him, you'll get lost in the mystery of this man. He is mystic, majestic, mysterious Jesus, holiness wrapped in humanity. He sneezed, coughed, yawned, burped, got the hiccups, and yet he could walk on water and raise the dead. When you try to pry at him, he pries at you. And when you finally meet him face to face, he'll shake your world. Hardened criminals have been known to fall on their knees, shield their eyes, tremble, and weep at his feet. That's what happened when the veil is lifted and you get a glimpse of his terrible, irresistible, glorious soul-consuming love. He had a life that was unparalleled. And yet through all of that, we see that Jesus was also perfectly weathered. That's one of those words that I've rediscovered this week, weathered. It's not a word we use commonly, but it means that you've been through enough that when the storms come, you're able to withstand it. And Jesus was weathered. Scripture tells us that he experienced everything that we experienced. That when it says that he became flesh and made his dwelling among us and moved into our neighborhood, that he experienced everything we experienced. You ever grieved over the loss of a loved one? Jesus did. It tells us that when Lazarus was dead, Jesus stood at the tomb and wept. You ever been rejected by family members or betrayed by close friends? Jesus has. His brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah and asked him to give up his whole job. His closest friends slept while he was in Gethsemane making a decision that would affect the rest of eternity. And the man that betrayed him to the officials was a guy that was close enough to him to be the treasurer in his organization. Have you ever been through so much stress and anxiety that it affected your health? Well, Jesus has. In Gethsemane, he was overcome by fear and anxiety so much that he sweated blood. Ever been gossip about, falsely accused, or had your reputation ruined? Jesus has. Ever been humiliated and ridiculed? Jesus has. Ever been assaulted, beaten, or tortured? Jesus has. You ever been killed? Well, maybe not that one. At least you're here, I hope not. But Jesus has. The Bible says that he's been through it all and been tempted in it all just like us. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that we don't have a high priest that doesn't understand our condition. He understands it all. His arrival was unexpected. His life was unparalleled. 
and His love is unexplainable. We know the story of Jesus' birth. We know the story of Jesus' life. And we know the end of the story. But I want you to think for a minute about the love that He had for us. You see, Jesus came into this world not just to let everybody know who He was and who God was and then go off the scene. What Jesus did was to come into this world in order to invite us back into the dance that God had created when He created the world. And He knew that the only way to do that was to give up His very life. And sometimes people read that and say, well, why couldn't God just forgive us? But the truth is, and we know this, that all real forgiveness involves cost. Now let's take an example. Let's say that one night I'm not at my house. But Jake and Ryan and Alan and Tom and Jim decide they're going to play a game of baseball in my backyard. Now, I know some of you would pay the price to go and watch that, but let's just say that it happened. And in the midst of that, Jake really gets a hold of one. The problem is he fouls it straight back. And it goes directly into my window. And crashes into the window and everything breaks. I come home, and Jake's got that look on his face like something terrible has happened, and he's the only one still standing there because everyone has left. Now, the truth is, out of the kindness and goodness of my heart, I'm going to forgive Jake. But somebody's got to pay for the window, right? Right? And so, whether it's me or it's Jake, there is a cost involved in forgiveness. He's going to pay it. I'm going to pay it. Or hopefully the insurance is going to pay it, but somebody is going to pay. Let's move that and remind you that all stories like that break down at some point when you move it to the big story. But when you and I broke our relationship with God, God just couldn't forgive us. It tells us in the book of Romans that the part of the reason Jesus was crucified was so that God didn't have to just look over sins anymore because in His justice He couldn't. And so when people say that Jesus died for me, the truth is He died to pay a price that I could never pay. And what He did on that tree when He gave His life is that He was exchanging His very life for me. Here's an interesting thing. Timothy Keller, who's a pastor in New York, says that the essence of sin is that we place ourselves in God's place. And the essence of grace and forgiveness is that God placed Himself in our place. And that on the cross, what Jesus did is that He exchanged His life of perfection for our lives of complete imperfection. And when you think that there would have been absolutely nothing wrong in the justice of God to just wipe us clean and start over, He loved us enough to give us another chance. When it tells us in verse 14 that we've seen His glory, that means His life. We're able to see from the Scripture what God is and who He is. And through Jesus' life, we're able to see that. But it also means that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we see the glory of God. A Father who loves us and pursues us. The real question is, 
Are you willing to accept that gift? I read this week a summary of a classic work called The Little Mermaid. Now let me tell you, it's not the Disney version of The Little Mermaid. It's the original version of The Little Mermaid. Disney, I know this is hard to believe, Disney softened the original. In the original story of The Little Mermaid, the mermaid falls in love with this guy and asks just to become human. And as part of this being human, that she wants to love and live with this man, marry him. And so she's granted that wish. And as she's granted that wish, what the stipulation on the wish is, is the only way she can remain human is if that male, that human, chooses her as well. And if that human chooses her as well, she can live her life happily ever after. And in the midst of the story, there's a place where on a boat, the the man, the prince, is in a very dangerous place and about to lose his life. And the mermaid rescues him. In the midst of the story, the human, the man, thinks that it's some other girl that has rescued him. So he falls in love with this human girl. And the little mermaid, over and over again, tries to woo him. And as she continually woos him and tries to get his attention, this man falls deeper and deeper in love with this other woman. And as the story's coming to a conclusion, it's coming to the point when you think it's got to have its final resolution. Hans Christian Andersen had not heard of Hollywood endings yet because they didn't exist yet. The story ends with the little mermaid on a boat. And as she's walking or there on the boat, she sees this man that she loves with his arm around this other lady. Her sisters offer her a resolution. They say, listen, we know that the curse was said that if you didn't get him to fall in love with you and marry you, that you would turn back to foam. But here's the thing. Here's a knife. And if you will kill the human... You can be a human too. Stories told that she takes the knife, gets back up on the boat, looks at him, and out of her desire and love for him, she just simply cannot do it. She tosses the knife overboard. She jumps back into the water. And the end of the story is, as the sun rose, it reflected off the foam on the top of the water. Now, first of all, you can see why Disney changed the story, right? But here's the thing that I think about with that. You see, in the story, the guy thinks this other woman saved him when she didn't. And so he gives up on the one who truly saved him for a cheap imitation. And I'm not saying that in any way the little mermaid reflects Christ But in our own lives, in our own stories, there are people in this room who have substituted things that they thought would bring them salvation that are cheap compared to the lavish love of our Savior. In fact, there are some very religious, very good Baptists who have traded in a love for Christ for keeping all the rules and doing all the right things. And the big picture of the story 
is this, that when we were at our most desperate moment, God stepped into the story in an unexpected way, lived an unparalleled life, and demonstrated his love through death and resurrection in a way that is unbelievable. The question is simply this morning, have you accepted that love? And are you living your life in the freedom that it brings?